0: you take your hymn book then and turn in the back section to uh, the larger catechism, and it's going to be question 7, which is found on page 940, the larger catechism, page 940. And as we've begun this series on the attributes of God, uh, I mentioned last Lord's Day evening to be considering uh, perhaps learning as, as adults the answer uh, that is given in our larger catechism to the question that we have there in seven, What is God? and then the response that is given. Together we'll use this as a responsive reading. So when we come to the answer, if you'll respond, What is God? And then if you turn to page 968, 968, we have the same question given in the shorter catechism, uh, which was intended primarily for children, and once again, as families, this might be something good for you over the course of the next several weeks as we're in this series uh, to recite and learn around the table as well. Again, follow with the answer. What is God? God is spirit. last Lord's Day we considered together that opening phrase God is spirit and what that means if perhaps you missed that you may want to uh, go back and listen to that uh, online this morning though we're as i mentioned earlier we're dealing with the fact that god is holy and for our scripture reading we're going to be looking at isaiah chapter 6 isaiah chapter 6 and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 and Consider them under that heading that God is holy. Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me. is taken away, and your sin atoned for. As far as the reading of God's Word, I invite you to keep it open as we make our way through these seven verses this morning. Let's again, though, bow in prayer and ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your Word, and we give thanks that you have given us your Word. We pray now that we may have hearts that understand your word and just bless pastor bob as he brings this to us that we may understand it more fully through the preaching of the word we pray in jesus name amen amen so let's consider this vision of isaiah these seven verses that we are given here in god's word under the following three headings first of all the vision itself secondly the words that are spoken and thirdly, the response that we see uh, indicated in this passage. So first of all, the vision, the words, and the response. It's important because God himself sets the scene in history. Uh, we've begun on Sunday mornings in our, one of our adult Sunday school classes uh, dealing with church history. And uh, we talked last week about the fact of the importance of understanding that uh, as history continues on, God is still not in special revelation, but in his general revelation revealing himself. But here we see that even in special revelation, God sets things in context. He wants us to understand the historical situation. To take away the historical situation of verse 1 and to say, well, that's not what matters. Let's just get to the holy, holy, holy. Does one God a disservice? Right? Because God's given to us, verse 1, the historical context. I know there are some people who think sometimes that, well, that historical context part, that's not really preaching. It's God's word. It's what God wants us to know. And we, and we really don't understand the rest of this vision until we understand the context, the historical context of the passage. In the year that King Isaiah died, that's when he sees the vision that is before us this morning. In the year that King Isaiah died, now, it's interesting that given the way it's stated, that doesn't necessarily mean that the vision is after King Isaiah died. It's in the year of, right? So, you know, let's say the year is 686 B.C. In that year, during the course of that year, in which King Isaiah is going to die. Isaiah has a vision. Now what we need to know about that is this. If this is the year Isaiah died, he had reigned for 52 years. 52 years. This man, Isaiah, has been king over the nation of Judah there has been great stability in that. I mean, we're not changing kings every couple of years. We're not switching things over so that what was said four years ago is not what you have in year five and what you have in year 10 is different than what you had before. There is this constant shifting and turmoil. One of the things that a king or queen gives you is some stability of known change. But if this is the year in which Isaiah died, he's sick. He is sick. He has been struck with leprosy. Now, Isaiah had a very good reign. When we become at the beginning of his reign, there are great praises given to him by the Lord, about his reign. That he's reigning well. That he does that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. But then he becomes prideful. He becomes arrogant. He takes on himself the role of the priest and comes under the judgment of God. That's why the leprosy. So here we are, a man who has reigned good and faithful for many years, has now nosedived. The guy's probably in some remote palace somewhere because he's got leprosy. He can't be around anybody. He's in isolation, makes you think. His son is probably somewhat in charge of day-to-day operations. In other words, we're in the midst of a very topsy-turvy situation. To add to that, Judah is very prosperous. They are very wealthy at this particular stage. The reign of Uzziah has been beneficial. But, we also know it is inwardly very corrupt. The morality of the nation is tanking. So the prosperity is high, but the morality is low. In addition, there are all sorts of outside threats, particularly from the north, from Assyria, that are kind of beating the war drums. And and there's sort of this dark cloud that, that is over the nation in terms of what are these foreign nations, these foreign powers gonna do to us. Well, oh, you know, when you add all that together, I can kind of understand Isaiah going, What's in front of us? What's life look like? What's the future hold? Because that description is not too much unlike your and my situation in this world, in this land today. In the year that King Isaiah died, what's seen is given to Isaiah. Well, what do we read here? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He sees a throne representing rule and control and power. And that the train of his robe fills the temple. It's flowing out of the temple. You you, you have to imagine one of those scenes that sometimes we see in Westminster uh, Chapel or Westminster Abbey, right? When there's a wedding or something or there's a coronation uh, that takes place, but we haven't seen a lot of it. Uh, we have to rely on old photos because that queen just kind of keeps staying and we don't get to see the new one, right? But they, they have these big fancy clothes, right? And, and it's got a long train behind it, okay? It, it looks like, to some extent, a wedding dress, But it's royal robes, and as they walk, the thing is behind them. And of course, the idea is the longer the robe, the more powerful, the more wondrous you must be. The train of the robe that Isaiah sees fills the temple. I used to think, when I I used to read this vision, that he saw the throne in the temple. But that isn't what it says. He says, I saw the throne high and lifted up. In other words, it's lifted up in the air. And his train is so long, it comes down through the heavens... Into the temple and is flowing out the doors of the temple. This is the scene that comes upon him. But the center of that theme, of that vision, of that scene that is before him, is the Lord. Now I want you to note, okay, verse 1. And I saw the Lord. Now, what's interesting is it's not in our versions capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Meaning that the Hebrew word here would have been Yahweh. Isaiah doesn't say, and I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne in the train of his temple, or the train of his robe filled the temple. Now the word here, the Hebrew word, is Adonai. And I saw Adonai. What's the distinction? Well, Yahweh is God's covenant name. When God is dealing with individuals in a covenant relationship in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh is used. We, in our English Bibles... Put all caps there. To differentiate the use, when we have a capital L and then small letters, it is referencing the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. Meaning, Master. Meaning, Lord. And I saw the Lord, the Master, the King, the Sovereign, I saw the sovereign one, I saw the ruler sitting on a throne high and lifted up with the train of his robe flowing through the temple. In the midst of his confusion, in the midst of the uncertainties of life, in the midst of Fear and perhaps some apprehension about the future. In the sense that maybe his stomach's doing a few churnings here and there because he's thinking, what's going to happen? We've had this good king, but he's on the downward, and we've got all these threats. What what, what does next year, what does five years, what does ten years down the pike look like? God comes to him, And gives him a vision of himself as the Adonai sitting on a throne, the train filling the temple. He gives him a vision of his absolute sovereign control over all things. I think we need a good dose of that. There's lots of reasons in life that we find to despair. There's lots of times that we think things are out of control. There's a lot of times when, when we think that everything is uncertain, but it's not uncertain. It may be unknown to us, but it is not uncertain. It is certain. Because the Lord sits upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his temple, uh, the train of his robe fills the temple. He's in control of nations, of leaders, of individuals, of circumstances, of situations. But there is another element, isn't there? There's another element of this vision that is seen by Isaiah, and that's these seraphim. These seraphim, who we would term as angels, who are around this throne. They are, have six wings, two by which they cover their face, Because they're in the presence of the glory of God. Two which cover their feet. Which is the idea of covering over their their creatureliness. And understanding they need to be humble in the presence of God's glory. And with two they are flying. In other words, they are active, they are moving, they are God's messengers that are sent throughout the earth. But then God would have a center, not just on the vision, not just on what he sees, but on the words spoken by these seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Let's consider those two phrases primarily. Holy is the Lord and glory to the Lord. First of all, holy to the Lord. The meaning. The word holy In scripture, carries two meanings, both of which happen simultaneously. So it's not like you pick one or the other. It's not like you go, oh, holy is used here. Does it mean meaning one or meaning two? It's always both. The first meaning of the word holy that I'll give to you, not necessarily in order, is the idea of one being set apart, distinct, unique. So we had a holy tabernacle. We have a holy Bible. right? We we have a holy supper. It's it's unique. It's distinct. It's it's not common. It's, It's unlike anything else in that regard. Holy means that something is unique. It has been specifically set apart from all other things. In other words, when we use it in reference to God, holy, 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 we are saying there is no other being that is comparable at all to God. He is completely set apart from all the rest of creation. He is completely unique from all the rest of creation. He is distinct from everything else there is. There is no being like God. He is holy. The second thing it means is to be morally pure. That there is no impurity, there is no sin, there is no spot, there is no stain. To be absolutely sinless, no imperfection of any type. Now why is there no being like God? Because he and he alone is the one being. In whom there are moral perfections. He alone is holy. There is no being like God. And the only way anything else can be holy is because of God. Nothing else has innate holiness. Nothing else is holy in and of itself. It's only because God, who is the only holy being, has made it holy. But then there's the repetition, right? Why didn't they just say, holy is the Lord God Almighty? No, it's holy, holy, holy. Because the Jewish people emphasize something by saying it three times. Sometimes we do that too, right? My, oh my, oh my. Three times. interesting how we do that, right? That repetition, three times over, is there for added emphasis. Hence, Jesus will say often, verily, verily, I say unto you. Right? The repetition is to emphasize it. How many of us, if parents, have not said to our children, look, I told you this, but I'm telling you again. And now I'm going to tell you a third time. Do we do it? We're emphasizing that's what the Jews are doing. The what, what God is communicating to us through these words of the seraphim is that his holiness is superlative, it's not just holy, it's holy, 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 so far, so distinct from us as creatures. Then comes the reminder in that regard. Stop and think for a moment. This Lord is here. Is present. This moment. He's here, this holy, 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 this I don't this one who occupies the throne, whose robe fills the temple, he's here, he's present. Well, that calls for a good latte. Well, let me check my phone a minute. I wonder if I got a message. Oh, I'm thinking about my jobs tomorrow. Where do I got to go? I'm thinking about our schedule this week, of all the places I, I got to take the kids. What time again was the Lions kickoff? Why one would want to be that depressed? I don't understand. But Oh, man, I'm really thinking about that game we got coming Friday night. Oh, wow. In our presence is the holy, holy, holy God. And so often, congregation and pastor alike allow the trivialest smallest most inconsequential things to enter into our minds and he is here he is present and he's present as the one who sits upon that throne holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Not a place. You can't contain the glory of God. You can't contain the rule of God. You can't contain the power of God. You cannot box him up. But not only do you not contain him, physically you can't contain him by the circumstances circumstances do not change the rule and the reign and the control and the power of god the whole earth is filled with his glory what's the response I've got to bring this to an end what's the response Everything shakes. Smoke is everywhere. For you see, when you understand the sinless perfection of God, then the only thing that God can truly bring upon this earth is judgment. That's the shaking. The Lord shakes the nations. The Lord shakes this world. It's the act of judgment. Remember, they used to shake out the dust from their cloaks. That was an act of judgment. Shake out the dust from their shoes. They, they didn't listen to the gospel. Just shake the dust off. It's an act of judgment, this shaking. And the smoke is the sign of the fire of God, the devour, devouring fire of God. What is the response? Judgment. Does Isaiah get it? Absolutely. Woe is me. He's one of the good guys. Woe is me. do I understand this holiness of God. I am a sinful human being. And all those around me are sinful. In light of God's absolute sinless perfections, every flaw, every sin, every misdeed, every misthought, Every word comes up as a huge blot. Woe is me, I am undone. When I consider God's judgment. Because he is the holy God. Woe is me. That's the only response you and I can have. It's the only response. Woe is me. See, I did Isaiah does nothing. <laughs> but understand his sinfulness. I'm undone. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. Romans is going to tell us. None. We all have mouths of sin signifying out of the heart. The mouth speaks. It's the heart. But God. See, the seraph can't do anything on his own, right? He's under the command of God. So we have to understand that the seraph is given a command. Go take a coal, go take a coal from the altar and put it on his lips. The altar of burnt offering, the altar where a sacrifice has been made. Take that coal and put it on his lips, pointing us again. Because all those sacrifices, right? They're not an end in themselves. They're pointing us to Christ. The fire that consumes in judgment is also the fire that cleanses. The sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ here represented before us is given to us. Coal from the altar put upon his lips and listen to the words, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why do we not spend our whole worship service going, whoa, it's me, I'm in the presence of God. Yes, we need that reminder. Yes, we underst- need to understand the holiness of God. We are far too flippant. Far too flippant in regards to our worship. Far too flippant about our, even our attendance into worship. We allow the flimsiest excuses in the world to keep us from this. An opportunity to be with the Holy One. But we could turn this into just a drudgery, right? (gasps) (sighs) Oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, whoa. Oh, doom and despair and agony on me. I'm undone. No. Why? Because there's been a cleansing. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and offered himself as that sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit has taken that offering, that sacrifice, and applied it to our hearts and applied it to our lives so that what? Our guilt is gone. Our sin has been atoned for. So yes, a sense of of understanding that woe is me. But also the understanding that Isaiah comes to in the next verses. Here am I, send me. Lord, I'm ready to do your will. I'm ready to live as your person. I'm ready to serve you. Always. Tell me where to go and I'll go. Tell me what to do and I'll do. Lord, I love you. You've atoned for my sin. My guilt is gone. The rejoicing and the joy and the glorious hope and comfort and assurance. So we come to this table. We remember the sacrifice. We remember it was because of our sin. It wasn't a good day. It wasn't a wonderful day. It was a horrible, terrific day. Because the sinless Lamb of God died for my sin. And the only reason he's on that cross, the only reason we have that meal, is because I, Bob the am a sinner. And I've offended a holy, holy, holy God. But I also get to eat. And I also get to drink. By the work of God's Holy Spirit. In my heart, in your heart. He has taken that sacrifice and applied it to us. So that this morning... We who are in Christ can hear. Take and eat. Take and drink. And remember and believe that your guilt and your sin has been atoned for. And God's people say, Amen.